So let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, so grateful that you gave your life for each one of us. On the cross, you showed us a mighty love. And now you call us to imitate you. As you pour your love into us, you call us to love one another as you have loved us. And as this love has been a source of hope in our life, May it continue to be a source of hope for the lives of many others as we live this commandment to love one another as you have loved us. For this we pray for the Holy Spirit who is love, who is your love and the Father's. And we make our prayer through your holy and powerful name and through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Amen. So are there any uh, fans of Dostoevsky? Yes. I don't know if I pronounce his name correctly each time I say it, but uh, I'm sure you understand who it is. So the, the 19th century Russian novelist and philosopher, I think he did a little poetry as well. In his letters, he would write down some of his most deep convictions about faith and about life. In one of his letters, he says, the world will be saved by beauty. The world will be saved by beauty. He goes on to say there is in the world only one figure of absolute beauty. And that figure is Jesus Christ. Years later, Pope Benedict XVI will, will take us further in our understanding of this. In his apostolic letter on love, Behold the Pierced One the source of all true beauty, what makes us and the world most beautiful is the love that we see radiating from Jesus crucified. Arms outstretched, heart pierced wide open, sacrificing himself out of love unto death for the sake of sinners and thereby drawing all to the cleansing streams of mercy that flow from the wound of his sacred heart, washing away the sins of his bride, adorning her with his own divine beauty, that splendor and glory which she lost. This is what can help us understand the deeper meaning of the wedding at Cana. 
that first miracle of Jesus in John's Gospel, when Mary said, she sees that the wine ran out, and she said to Jesus, they have no wine. Remember that wine in Scripture is sometimes symbolic of love. Jesus then responded, My hour has not yet come. And in John's Gospel, as we know from our studies of the Scripture, when Jesus uses that phrase, my hour, it always refers to the moment of his passion and death on the cross. So now Jesus is connecting what he does, changing the water into wine, the new wine, he connects it to the cross. Mary here is acting in her role as mother of the whole human family, having this compassionate gaze upon a world so fallen and sinful, so often dominated by pride, greed, hatred, division, self-interest, a landscape of broken hearts and relationships. And she says, Jesus, they have no wine. The first wine can be symbolic of this human love. It is good. But our human love is so fallen, as I said, so broken and limited, and so easily and quickly becomes selfish. They have no wine. And the wine that God wants to give is the new wine of agape love that St. Paul describes can bear all things, endure all things, believes and hopes all things, a love that never fails, a love that is always patient, always humble, always other-centered, always those things that Paul describes. And this is followed by this beautiful, further into John's Gospel, chapter 13. There's three moments in that chapter. It starts out by describing the life of Jesus. And it would be beautiful if you and I could have this on our tombstones. How does John sum up the life of Jesus? Jesus loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. That's our life. This is the call of God upon your life and mine, to love our own in the world, and with Jesus, to love them right to the end. And then this is followed by the washing of the feet. And after washing the feet, what does Jesus say? I have given you an example. As I have done to you, so you also are to do to one another. And this is followed by the third moment when Jesus says, By this 
will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we are not just called to receive love. That is the first thing and the most important to start. But this love that we are to receive is to be given away, is to be shared, to be lived. I want to share my testimony at this moment. Hope came into my life, started in my life, the moment I fell into the waiting arms of Jesus' mercy. This was my first experience of real mercy. I was so miserable. My life was a mess. My heart broken and helpless. And I had pushed God away so many times. And now, for the first time, there was hope in this initial experience of God. I knew in faith at this moment that God was real, that God loved me, and that God was going to help me change my life. To know concretely how this was going to happen, God in his gracious mercy and providence placed one of his beloved daughters a disciple of Jesus in the life of my family. Her name was Catherine. We called her Kay. She was the the one who taught us how to live the gospel of Christ, which I discovered at this time was actually good news. Those years sitting in church hearing the gospel before that, I had no clue that it was actually good news. And this is what continually fed the hope that was slowly growing in my heart. She was not a theologian. She was not a biblical scholar. She only attended school up to the eighth grade. But she herself was shown great mercy at a moment of crises in her life, after which God prepared her to share with others the hope of the gospel that became her hope. She had a beautiful simplicity, a childlike heart, and this was the perfect disposition for the Holy Spirit who gave her the gift of wisdom. And one of the fruits of wisdom is the ability to understand and explain the truths about God, about Jesus, and the plan of salvation in a simple way. And the way she summed up the gospel was the call of God upon our life to what? To clean up our way of loving. And of course, for this to happen, one has to deal with sin, which we learned about, because these are the things that are opposed to love. 
and which also prevent us from receiving love and giving love. But the real emphasis in this growing Christian community was on growing in love. And to grow in love, Kay made it very clear that I needed Jesus. This is not something I was going to be able to do on my own by just simply trying harder. I needed Jesus, who is the only hope of this world. That Jesus was going to help me with my sinful habits and weaknesses. That Jesus was going to teach me how to love. And that he himself would be the source of this love. <clears throat> and this is why Kay taught us how to pray. If I need Jesus, I have to turn to Jesus. And even this was simple. God wanted me to give him my heart and to surrender my will so that God could give me his heart, the heart of Jesus, and take me into his will. I made a mess of my life by doing my will. I knew that was not going to work again. Now it became about God's will. And what was God's will? It was for me to open each day to his love. A love that is mercy. A love that is healing. A transforming love that is hope, so that I could show that same love to my family and anyone God placed in my life. God's, now, God's will now being first, I had to learn how to cooperate with what God was doing and with what God was now inviting me to do with him. And what was that? Mainly, to die with Jesus each day to any movements of sin from the old life and rise with Jesus into the new life of, of agape love as expressed in the many gospel virtues like meekness, humility, patience, mercy, forgiveness, etc. This is what the church describes as living the Paschal mystery. Whenever you hear that phrase, Paschal mystery, it refers to the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus and also culminates in the ascension. This is how I came to understand that the cross is a tree of life that bears much fruit that leads to the resurrection, and that this is the only path to real and certain hope, cleaning up through Jesus our way of loving, one day and moment at a time, one victory at a time. And of course, this hope that comes from living the agape love of the kingdom started 
in my family. Agape love is the hope for the healing of broken, hurting, struggling relationships. Before I thought life would before I thought life would only get better if the people around me would just change. The problem is not me, it's them. The new way was different. I had to stop trying to change the people around me, which I was not able to do, nor very successful at, and allow Jesus to change me so that I could do what? Begin to love. Beginning in the little things. And this is what I saw my brother do. He was the first to be deeply converted to Christ in our family. And then I started to see my sister doing the same thing, bringing love into the little daily stuff of life. My brother would refrain from teasing me, doing random acts of kindness and generosity around the house, apologizing for past and present hurts, which, as I've shared before, just blew me away because we never did this in our family. We never apologized for anything. And then praying for me, which is also an expression of love. In every expression of agape love, there is hope. If you want hope to come back into your life, start loving And just start putting love into where there is not love. In every expression of agape love, there is hope. Why? Because it comes from God and is a result of the work of God in us. And this is how God recreates and renews the face of the earth through the Holy Spirit. One heart at a time. I remember when Dr. Bob Schutz said, wherever there is love, healing is happening. We are healed by love, but also healed by loving. And there's such a need for this healing, mainly in friendships, marriage, and family life, where we do what? We hurt each other. Even when trying to live the gospel, Sometimes we fall back into our sinful habits and we hurt one another. Behold the pierced one. Even Jesus knows what it's like to have his heart pierced by sin, rejection, betrayal, hatred, cruelty, indifference. By sin, we pierce each other's heart. But when we look at Jesus, what do we see? Jesus is still loving. Though his heart is pierced, his heart doesn't close. He keeps loving. And what Jesus wants to give us is the grace to keep loving also when our heart is pierced by the sin of others.
Remember the humility sheet that I offered a few weeks on a weekend? It's amazing how much this one gospel virtue is capable of healing, renewing, mending broken relationships and making them stronger. Humility allows for greater love to be unleashed. And there are extra sheets of that humility sheet uh, on the table when you leave today, if you want to take one, if you weren't here on that weekend. But for example, deferring to others. I'm not the center of the universe anymore. Before I thought I was. Saying I'm sorry. (laughs) That takes humility, doesn't it? Because what keeps us from apologizing? Pride. Admitting and confessing our sins. Joyful when others are praised. Joyful to do things that are hidden, that go unnoticed. Anticipating the needs and preferences of others. Being the first to extend love and not always waiting for it to be extended to us first. Accepting small irritations cheerfully. Boy, there's a tough one. Not being surprised or upset with one's own imperfections and weaknesses or with those of others. Not dwelling on the faults of others. Responding with prayer to the weaknesses and sins that we see around us. And so forth and so on. There's so many examples. Just humility would bring so much hope into any relationship that's struggling, that's hurting. Agape love is also the hope for sinners. And this is after this weekend's hearing again together the gospel from Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. My goodness. And if you weren't here this weekend, go back and listen to the homily. In my own poor way, I tried to flush out the beauty of agape mercy that is being revealed so powerfully in that parable. For us today, it's to remember that this too is included in the exhortation of Jesus when he said, love one another as I have loved you. Imagine what would happen if the church and each member of the church embodied and lived the mercy of Jesus and his Father that we see clearly in that parable. Imagine this. Why were the sinners drawn to Jesus? Because of the beauty of agape mercy that he was radiating, that he so perfectly embodied. No condemnation, no judgment, just come. Come as you are. The one th- it's one thing to believe in what Jesus reveals, but we all know it's another to encounter it in the flesh, in another human being. And we can all think of examples in our life. 
Archbishop Flynn, God rest his dear soul, he radiated this mercy. Whenever I was in his presence, I just wanted to be good because of the way he loved me. Even though he knew my imperfections, sometimes I would go to him for confession. He knew that I was a very imperfect man. If he was alive today, he would still know it. And yet the way he loved me, it's like he was loving the sin right out of me. And such a desire to be good. I've had this with friendships. And of course, some of my friends are priests. And we often hear each other's confessions. So we know everything. (laughs) All the brokenness and everything, you know. And yet, as friends, we're just deeply loving each other. Not judging. Not holding anything against the other. Just loving each other even deeper into the arms of Jesus' mercy. I've also had certain confessors and retreat directors that have conveyed this. A love that forgives and by forgiving can also open doors to reconciliation. The important thing is that we forgive. You and I both know we can't always control how our forgiveness is received. Reconciliation is not always possible, at least not right away, because it takes two people. But our forgiveness can open doors to future reconciliation. It can prepare the ground. And with Peter, that beautiful question of Peter, Lord, when a brother offends me, how often should I forgive him? Seven times? Don't you love Peter? And Jesus says, I tell you not just seven times, but 77 times. The hope of a persevering mercy, which shows that my relationship with you matters. I value the gift of our relationship enough that I am going to continue to work at forgiveness. No matter how many times, no matter how hard it is, I, with Jesus, am going to commit to working on forgiveness. Beautiful hope. What beautiful hope of persevering mercy. This is from an anonymous uh, Dominican priest. Mercy is to regard the misery of another as our own and to do all that we can to come to their help. The greatest mercy we can show to another is to pardon. It is not to forget the fault which has wounded us, but to regard the misery of the other as a means and opportunity to bring renewal of life and that from their fault may spring a new beginning. Jesus shows us mercy that we in turn may show mercy. 
Our hope and prayer goes even further than our forgiveness. We also pray that the one we have pardoned will be able to pardon themselves. That the one who has received mercy will be able to turn around and show mercy also. For mercy begets mercy. Agape love is hope for strangers, the lonely, and the outcast. I want to read to you an excerpt from a book called The Perfect Joy of St. Francis. And this describes the moment in his life, St. Francis of Assisi, when he encounters the leper. Returning home one day from the market and trying to catch up with his father, who was way ahead of him, his horse suddenly sprang aside and stood stock still. A leper was standing in front of him. The leper was bald and covered with sores. His chin was eaten away, and his nose was nothing but a red hole. A dark stream of blood was running down from his left eye, which bawled out like a frog's. Only one finger was left on his right hand. The leper looked up at Francis with infinite sadness. Francis felt his hair standing on end from horror. Fear of infection gripped his throat. He quickly gave his horse the spurs and galloped away. He did not dare look back. His hat fell off, but he paid no attention. Yet as he rode on, he remembered the message of the gospel. Despise all that you formerly desired and cherish all that you formerly despised. Then he said to himself, You actor, you are moved with tears when you read the gospel. But when you meet someone whose suffering is the truest continuation on this earth of our Lord's passion, you are so selfish that you run away. He felt intensely ashamed. Suddenly he turned his horse around and rode back. The leper was still standing there. His smell nearly made Francis faint. Nevertheless, he dismounted and bowed to this man in whom he saw an image of Jesus Christ in all his suffering. All concern for his own life had vanished. He felt nothing but love. And he kissed the man on his cleft lips. The leper wept, and his tears mingled with the stream of blood on his cheek. His jaws moved as he tried to say something, but he said nothing. He, had, he no longer had any, any tongue. The next day, Francis rode to the little leper colony that was located in an isolated section of the country. When he entered the leper's building and saw them cowering there like stray dogs in their stench 
of their sores. He had a moment of physical revulsion, but his love was stronger. How astounded the patients were that such a rich and healthy young gentleman should suddenly appear and kiss their hands. He looked upon, they looked upon him as an angel from heaven. The flies, millions of flies, were swarming back and forth between their wounds and their food. Such was the hell into which Francis came. No wonder the lepers knelt, knelt and wept. But Francis was the happiest of them all because he had overcome his physical nature. All through the following winter, when his father was away, he secretly went out to the leper colony. He gave them his love and affection. He put oil and new bandages on their sores. He washed and bathed them. And he read the Gospels to them and told them stories. Was St. Francis hope for these people? Did agape love, which, as the gospel teaches us, is stronger than death, was it a source of new hope for these poor people? St. Teresa of Calcutta said, and I think she's right, the greatest suffering in the world is loneliness, to feel unloved and unwanted. And there is a deeper suffering of spiritual poverty, to live without knowing the love of God, without knowing Jesus. Hope is knowing that I am not alone, that someone actually cares about me. Mother Teresa knew suffering very well, and we see, throughout, we see this throughout her life, and that it was only finding Jesus in her suffering that she found any consolation in it. Let's listen to her own words. Suffering has to come because if you look at the cross, Jesus has got his head bending down. He wants to kiss you. And he has both hands open wide. He wants to embrace you. He has his heart open wide to receive you. When you feel miserable inside, look at the cross and you will know what is happening. Suffering, pain, sorrow, humiliation, feelings of loneliness are nothing but the kiss of Jesus. A sign that you have come so close to Jesus that he can kiss you. Do you understand? Suffering has to come that came in the life of Our Lady, that came in the life of Jesus. It has to come into our life also. Only do not put on a long face. Suffering is a gift from God. It is between you and Jesus alone on the inside. This is how we understand this phrase in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter 
chapter 1. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts us in all our sufferings, so that we can comfort those in any afflictions with the same comfort that we have received from God. Because St. Mother Teresa experienced Jesus in all that she suffered, she could bring the same consolation now to all the suffering that she encountered. Not only was she an incarnation of Jesus in how she loved these, poor, these poorest of the poor, but when she could, she would help them find Jesus in the suffering of their life. The mercy in compassion is not only to help relieve the other's suffering, if we can, but to help them bear the suffering that cannot be mitigated, about which nothing can be done. Divine compassion, the consolation of the Holy Spirit, is not first to take away the suffering, but to help the person find Jesus to turn to Jesus who is with them in their suffering. And Jesus can then reveal to them how suffering is a way of being with him, how suffering can be turned into sacrifice. In other words, made into a gift offered to Jesus and with Jesus and that this is love. Suffering turned into love. This is the deeper consolation and hope that the Holy Spirit is always waiting to give. We are not alone in our suffering. Jesus has borne our suffering and redeemed it from within, thereby making suffering something that can now be turned into love and become redemptive and salvific. Mary can be our best advocate and teacher when it comes to redeemed suffering, for she was the first, first to witness it and participate intimately in it. She was the one standing beneath the cross. And what did she see? She watched Jesus turn all his suffering into love, redeeming all human suffering from the inside by transforming it into love, using it all as a way to reveal love and as a way to go even further in love. He did not retaliate with threats to the threats that were made at him. He didn't try to take vengeance on the harm that was being done to him. He didn't eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He used rejection, abandonment, betrayal, mocking, anger, hatred. How did he redeem the world? Not by perpetuating all those things, as war does, but by a non-violent, agape love that says no. Enough. 
And he responds with a love that gives his life unto death for the very people that are killing him. Mary, the first disciple of Jesus, following his lead, lives her suffering with Jesus, uniting all of it with him, experiencing it as something that she could now share with him, and with him, turn it into love for salvation. And I must say, with you, this is where I'm so grateful for my Catholic faith. In understanding redemptive suffering. In the Lutheran faith of my childhood, suffering was merely suffering and nothing but a big bummer. It's something you just try to get through. But oh my goodness, in the Catholic faith, we have this deeper understanding of redemptive suffering and how, like Jesus, we can use it to love and go even further in love. This is a lesson we need to keep learning over and over and over. So agape love is also a source of hope for the sick. And I came across this beautiful message of St. Pope Paul VI touching Jesus in our suffering. And this is a message to the sick and all those who suffer in the world. To all of you who are visited by suffering under a thousand forms, the Second Vatican Council has a very special message. It feels on itself your pleading eyes, burning with fever or hollow with fatigue, questioning eyes which search in vain for the why of human suffering and which ask anxiously when and from where will come relief. We feel echoing deeply within our hearts as fathers and pastors your laments and your complaints. Our suffering is increased at the thought that it is not within our power to bring you bodily help, nor the lessening of your physical sufferings, which physicians, nurses, and all those dedicated to the service of the sick are endeavoring to relieve as best they can. But we have something deeper and of more value to give you, the only truth capable of answering the mystery of suffering and of bringing you relief without illusion. And that is faith and union with the man of sorrows, with Christ the Son of God, nailed to the cross for our sins and for our salvation. Christ did not do away with suffering. He did not even wish to unveil to us entirely the mystery of suffering. But Jesus took suffering upon himself, and this is enough to help you understand all its value. All of you who feel heavily the weight of the cross, you who are poor and abandoned, you who weep, 
you who are persecuted for justice, you who are ignored, you the unknown victims of suffering, take courage. You are the preferred children of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of hope, happiness in life. You are the brothers and sisters of the suffering Christ. And with him, if you wish, you are saving the world. This is the Christian science of suffering, the only one which gives peace. Know that you are not alone, separated, abandoned, or useless. You have been called by Christ crucified and are his living and transparent image. In his name, the council salutes you lovingly, thanks you, assures you of the friendship and assistance of the church, and we bless you. Isn't that beautiful? This reminds me of an experience I had years ago when I was serving the Native American community. A woman from <clears throat> my first assignment at St. John Newman, her name was Kathy. She woke up one morning she tripped over a rug and hit her head on a coffee table and was paralyzed from the neck down from the fall. She was in a care, uh, a care center after that. And, you know, the visits were numerous at the beginning and then after a few weeks down to a trickle and almost nothing. And after the masses on Sunday, I would go and visit her in the care center where she was. And in my own poor way, I tried to convey to her what we just heard from St. Pius VI, and that she was very intimately a part of the mission of the church, and therefore of my apostolate to the Native American people, that I was doing my part in the trenches, and she from her bed of suffering, and that together, although I'm convinced it was more through her suffering, we were participating, many ways hidden, in this amazing mission of Christ for the salvation of souls. Where's the hope in this? One of the movements of hope is to move from meaninglessness and this is the great temptation of those in these situations, to think that their life no longer has meaning, has value, purpose. What's the point? To move from that to understanding this great high purpose, that in their suffering they can be connected to the great mission of Christ, the all-important work of salvation. And here's where we realize that even though there are times in our life where physically we are so limited, almost like Jesus paralyzed on the cross, he's nailed there and he cannot move. But Jesus reveals that although we may be physically limited, we are not 
limited spiritually in this redeemed capacity to love. Jesus spent 30 years living a hidden life in Nazareth, three years of public ministry, and only three hours on the cross. But he did more in those three hours, revealed the greatest love, and accomplished our salvation. This is what I love, again, about our Catholic faith. Look at the hope that we can bring to the homebound, the bedridden, and various people that feel so forgotten, that feel their life has no value, that feel disconnected from the church because of their situation, and feel like God has abandoned them. Look at the hope that we can bring them. That agape love can transform their situation through this vision of redemptive suffering. Agape love can also be hope in turning suffering into love as a path to charity and healing the broken and the wounded. As we experience suffering, our immediate and often initial reactions can be one of anger or sadness, worry and anxiety, resentment or self-pity, and even despair. We should not be surprised by these various reactions, nor should we be ashamed of them. And regardless of how unchristian they may feel to us, we must be careful not to suppress or deny them or muscle our way over them, but rather bring them into the space of our prayer and allow God's grace to touch and penetrate them. Then and only then will it be possible to respond to our suffering and use it in a new way. God always desires to meet us where we are, not the future self we hope to be someday, but the fallen, imperfect child that I am today. The prayers that carry the greatest potential for healing, redemption, and transformation are those that are the most humble, sincere, and honest. But as we allow God to love us into a new place, in our suffering, what now can I do for others with my suffering? And here I want to read to you an excerpt from uh, a book by the Canadian author, Michael O'Brien. It's one of his thicker ones. It's about a Native American girl growing up in Canada. She's living with her grandmother. Uh, it doesn't give the, the circumstances of why. Her grandmother's name is Old Mary. Her name is Rose Wabos. And the excerpt I'm going to read begins in the beginning at the moment when a neighbor in the village finds a young native boy living like a savage 
in the woods, living like an animal. And this man finds him and brings him home and begins to introduce him to the other villagers. And so what I'm going to read to you, now his name is Binaman, okay? The native boy is Binaman, but sometimes he's referred to as the savage or, or something else. This is Rose's first encounter with this boy. The bell rang for the beginning of Mass. The priest came through a side door of the sanctuary and began to pray in Latin. The people rose to their feet. The little madman dropped to the floor and rolled under the pew, where he curled into a fetal position. Rose watched him as she gazed at him in wonderment and sadness. God spoke to her. As the words without words poured through her, she felt them as fire petals unfolding in her heart, like sweet tea or Saskatoon berry jam. This is your little brother, the voice said. Rose fell to her knees and peered under the pew. Lying flat on her belly, she wiggled under, so close that her face was an inch from his. Little brother, she whispered. His eyes flew open. They were strange eyes for an Indian. They were green-gray, and the shape of his face was like a white man's, though it was brown as hers. He snarled, a long, low gargling in the back of his throat, and he mouthed a word that was evil. Rose drew back, then reminding herself of the message of God. She put her face close again to his. Little brother, she whispered, God has given you to me. I am your sister. Did something bad happen to you, she asked, daring to put a hand on his shoulder. His clothes smelled of wood smoke. His breath was like rotting fish. His eyes flared again. He rolled over and faced the wall. He shook off her hand, but this time he did not snarl or say the evil word. Rose left him for a few minutes at communion time. After receiving the blessed sacrament, Rose knelt beside old Mary. The fire in her heart was sweeter than anything she had ever known before. And the words without words, the song without music, continued to flow through her with such force that she gasped for breath. I ask a sacrifice of you, said the fire song. Rose tugged at her grandma's sleeve and asked, what is a sacrifice? A sacrifice, her grandmother said, is when you take a heavy load on your back, like a hurt or a not fairness. You give it to God and he puts it on the cross of Jesus, the big sacrifice, and the mass, which is also 
the big sacrifice, and then you have a part in it. What kind of part, Rose whispered, part of mending, like sewing? Yes, sewing the riptide, sewing the cut flesh, stopping the blood that is pouring out too fast. That is sacrifice? Yes, that is sacrifice. Does it hurt? Yes. Oh, she said. Rose now wondered if she wanted this thing. This thing had been offered by the song of God, by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. She did not know which, but it was surely God who had asked the question. But he had asked, not told her, which meant that she was free to say no. She glanced down at the dirty, wild, mad boy lying in the shadow under the bench. She loved him. And as she loved him, the sweet fire song swelled in her heart, and she knew that the hurt would be a small thing compared to the love she would have for him and the life that would come back into him by her love. She fell into seeing inside herself and found that quiet place in her heart where Jesus was. Yes, she said, I will, in words, without words. How did she live this out? She watched him standing by himself in the schoolyard at recess and lunch hours, always gazing into the forest as if something would come out of it. Sometimes his eyes would flare and he would growl. He would crouch and grab a stick or a stone. When the school bell rang, he would drop his weapons and his face would go blank. Rose was not afraid because she loved him. She developed a habit of going to the edge of the woods at recess and lunch hour and standing a few feet away from him, saying nothing. Whenever the bile fire erupted out of his eyes, as green as the gall of a butchered bear, my goodness. <laughs> I love her descriptions. Bitter and sour smelling, the fire inside of her flared stronger and sweeter. She made the rose fire leap across the great space between them and push back the bile fire. She told her love to go inside of him and pour light into him to warm him up. Deep, deep inside, below the place where words are made, below the locked doors, which made him silent. It seemed that he felt what she was sending to him. Whenever she stood beside him, he would not pick up a stick or a stone, though he would never look at her. She had one of these curved spines that made her suffer a lot. From time to time, she felt a hurting in her back. Sometimes it was so bad that she could not sleep. And when she would try to pour, and then she would try to pour the hurting into the darkness 
that was in Benjamin to push out the horrible things that had been done to him. But it seemed hard to do. And then she read in a book she found in the church that you had to offer sufferings to Jesus first and he would use the sacrifice in the best way of all. When she learned this, she felt peaceful inside and knew that the love was winning. As she grew older month by month, followed by another year, she began to see the pattern. When she hurt most and poured it into the wounds of Jesus, Jesus poured it into Benjamin. And soon after, Benjamin would make another step and another step and another step. Maybe someday he would speak. This speaks louder than words. This is how we can convert our suffering into something that can heal what is wounded and broken in another without them even knowing. This is why prayer, intercessory prayer, is another source of hope and a beautiful expression of agape love. I do not even have to leave the place where I am. And because of how we are connected in the communion of saints, my prayer can cross oceans and span continents. And my prayers can affect, for example, the people suffering in the Ukraine. And I've not left Minnesota, Mendota. Our prayers, it's like the four friends of the paralytic lowering their friend down before Jesus. This is why you and I are allowed to see the sins of others. Why we are allowed to see their brokenness. Why we feel their wounds. Not so that we can complain. Not so that we can gossip. Not so that we can criticize and condemn. It's so that we can express agape love. And through intercessory prayer, bring hope which is the only solution. How many people are watching the TV and the news, troubled at heart and just getting angry and ranting? And, and what good does that do? What good is that doing for anyone? Nothing. Jesus is the only hope for this world and only agape love that we see flowing from the side of the pierced one is what is going to renew the world and bring true peace and unify people. This is what will turn swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus doesn't say, only if they're nice to you. <laughs> it doesn't matter how it's received, how they respond back. What matters is that I change the only thing I can change with Jesus, 
And that is my heart. And that my heart can now become a source of hope and renewal by one act of agape love. And then by another act of agape love. This is it. Nothing else. And we're wasting our time with anything else. Now, if God gives me other ways I can help tangibly, physically, amen. But sometimes we cannot change certain kinds of suffering in our life and in the lives of others. We, we can try to mitigate, amen, and that too is love. But what about the suffering we cannot change? What do we do with that? That's what we're talking about here. This is what we're talking about. The Pieta, Mary, holding the dead, broken, bruised, blood-covered body of Jesus. This is the vocation of the church, to take all the broken and wounded that we encounter in our life and to be those arms of Mary, merciful, compassionate, not condemning or judging, but like Rose Wabos, to take them in to our agape, compassion, and mercy so that healing may truly, truly happen. The last thing I want to say The Holy Spirit is so critical and important. Not only is the Holy Spirit, does the Holy Spirit provide the light that we need to know how to love in each circumstance, but it also is the actual source of agape love. But I want to focus on the first thing, how the Holy Spirit educates us in love. Sometimes I get questions. Father, how do I deal with this situation? Whether it's with a child, a sibling, a parent, a spouse. And sometimes all I can say is, you need the Holy Spirit to guide you. We would love to have a black and white manual. Okay, when this happens, this is what I do next. If this person says this, then I say this. My dear sisters and brothers, there is no such manual. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. My brother and sister and I often ask the question, growing up in our new conversions, how do we love mom and dad? How do we love the people in our life? And then Jesus would show us. But it wasn't by handing us a, a, a manual black and white. It was by teaching us how to be aware and attentive to the Holy Spirit. And what's beautiful about the Holy Spirit, because sometimes with our best intention and desire for God's help, we still, because of our weakness and frailty, you know, maybe, you know, the, the light get, does not get filtered correctly. Or my old habits kind of get in the way of sin and weakness. But the Holy Spirit educates after the situations. 
I've had it happen to me so many times where the Holy Spirit nudges me and says, you said too much. Or next time, say it this way, not that way. Or, okay, you've said enough now, back off. Okay? Or the Holy Spirit will say, nope, don't say anything. Nope, don't say it. <laughs> All right? I remember a, a situation in Texas. I was speaking to a group of youth preparing for confirmation. And after the talk, the Holy Spirit said, you blew it. Said, you lost them. And what was beautiful is then the Holy Spirit educated me on why I lost them. You know, I didn't realize it, but I was more focused on what I felt I needed to say and, and how to say it. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, okay, you know, you, you, you tried. But next time, focus more on connecting with them, listening to them, letting the first thing be that they experience and hear is that you love them right where they are in their life. And then watch their body language. Watch their eyes. Be listening and attentive. And then let me guide you on what to say, how to say it, how much to say, and so forth. The Holy Spirit is always educating us if we are attentive after situations. Sometimes the Holy Spirit might say, you need to go apologize for your anger. Sometimes the Holy Spirit can say any number of things, educating us in agape love. Okay, so God bless you. And let's pray for each other. Let's pray that we can live this. It's the most important thing we do after this talk is to live this out, to become living incarnations of agape love, the hope of the world. Amen? Amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.